This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good afternoon, East Coast, and good morning, West Coast. Welcome to Rand's Call with the Experts. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at Rand. These calls are one of the many benefits of being a policy circle, Rand Next, or Next Leaders member. Joining me today from San Francisco is Nidhi Kalra a senior information scientist at RAND and also director of our San Francisco Bay Area office. Nitty spearheads RAND's autonomous vehicle policy work and recently co-authored the RAND Ventures report titled The Enemy of Good, Estimating the Cost of Waiting for Nearly Perfect Automated Vehicles. A little spoiler alert, that cost is too high, by the way. Uh, RAND Ventures depends on philanthropic contributions to support our ability to take the long view and tackle tough often controversial projects. We thank you for your support. I'd also like to note that Nitty's spouse is co-founder and president of Nero, a startup engaged in autonomous vehicle development, though his work has no bearing on Nitty's research. Today's call is scheduled for 45 minutes. I'll start by asking Nitty a few questions and then we'll take yours. Nitty, it seems that we are clearly headed toward a future with autonomous vehicles. Uh, how far off is that future, and should we be looking forward to it with excitement or dread? You know, that future, honestly, it's here. It's already <laughs> possible for a member of the public to get into an autonomous vehicle with no person in the driver, and in fact, no driver in the seat at all, and go somewhere. In Pittsburgh, you still have to, they still have people in the cars, don't they? That's right. In, some, in many places, they still have trained drivers behind the wheel ready to jump in. But we're starting to see pilots, for example, in Vegas, where there is no driver in the driver's seat. There's no driver's seat at all. And so we are now starting to see the reality of what was once science fiction. Now, I think over the next decade, next 10 years, we're going to see more and more deployment of truly self-driving vehicles around the country, and it may even be possible for someone to buy a vehicle that is truly self-driving. Any idea how and, much you know, those might cost? Well, I think initially they, you know, we can look to luxury and vehicles, you know, upwards of $50,000, but it is, it's going to have to come down for this technology to be viable for OEMs to deploy them. So I think they will be not ultra high-end, but eventually they'll get down to high-end luxury vehicles. But for companies like Uber and Lyft and other transportation service providers that are trying to incorporate autonomy into their fleet, that ride is going to cost you a couple of bucks. So you don't have to own a self-driving vehicle to ride in a self-driving vehicle. And for that, we should be excited. Would you see the prices that Uber charges would they go up because the vehicles are expensive or would the prices go down because uh, the labor costs are lower? Well, I think they would, they might initially go up a little while there's a novelty feature, but I think these companies' gameplay, their approach is to make this cost lower and lower and lower, almost to the point of subsidizing those costs and throwing money, their own money at the problem. So I think we would expect the cost to be lower, not strictly because it's lower for Uber or Lyft, but because they want to get the technology out there. What is standing in the way of seeing more of these vehicles on the road right now? 
Well, one of the concerns is just everyone is worried. Are they safe enough? And no one's quite sure what even safe enough means or how we would know it. So there's a real conundrum there. The developers don't want to put out a technology that is going to get into a serious crash. Because even if on the whole the technology is safer than people, we don't take kindly to machines hurting us. So there's a concern that the technology needs to be very, 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 very safe. Meanwhile, no one is sure how to demonstrate that it's very, 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 very safe. Um, and Or what even very, very, very safe means. So that, I think, is a central to the problem, is how reliable do they need to be? How are we going to know? That's, that's a lot of varies, and I know that that gets right at some of your recent research. Can you quantify at all what you're talking about, what were percentages and uh, what you found in your report? Sure. So we asked the question, what would it cost us in terms of lives saved or lives lost to wait until self-driving vehicles are what might, we might call nearly perfect, like 90% better than human drive, the average human driver right now? What would it cost us for, to wait till that level of performance before we put them on the roads? versus allowing them when they're just, say, 10% better than the average human driver. Now, a lot of the findings depend on, you know, when are they deployed and how quickly do they improve, but we found that it always makes sense to deploy when they're just better rather than waiting for perfection, and the difference can be half a million lives in some circumstances over 30 Where years. Where do we stand right now? Are they as good as or better than human drivers right now? I I think we have to believe that they're better than human drivers in the circumstances that they're allowed to operate. So, for example, autonomous vehicles are in many ways constrained. They can be geofenced. They have to be in this particular area, only on these roads, only at these speeds, only in these, in these climates. Under those circumstances, they my bet is they perform better than human drivers in those same environments. But once you break out of those those constraints, then all bets are off. That might not be good enough for the average person to buy such a vehicle, but that's the way that's the way developers are working to this problem is carve out a chunk of physical space and constraints, make it better than human drivers in that environment, and then try to keep expanding it. Am I hearing you say that Maybe you have a situation where autonomous vehicles are let loose on highways, but then you have to have human drivers on city streets? Exactly. Or it might be the opposite. It might be that they can be without a driver on city streets under 25 miles an hour, but once you start getting up to you know, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, then you need a human driver. Or it can be that you're allowed to test in you know, Arizona, or you're allowed to drive have these vehicles in Arizona, but the operators don't want them working in Fargo, North Dakota, for example, because, gosh, it's just too snowy and icy and the vehicles can't handle it. So everyone is taking a different view of what the constraints are for their particular vehicle. Got it. I'm going to go ahead and take an email question that we have. This is from Rachel, and she says, we've seen Amtrak accidents recently where the engineer seemed to believe the train was being controlled automatically and therefore made mistakes manually. Assuming that self-driving cars will allow for manual override, how will that contribute to accident rates and how can that be controlled or avoided? Also, as we manage the integration of both driven and driverless cars, how does the algorithm plan for driver error in other cars? 
that's a, those are two great questions from Rachel. Let me start with the second one, which is that we can expect for a very long time to have both self-driven and human-driven vehicles on the road. And right now, developers are designing their vehicles to expect the humans around them to make mistakes. And so the vehicles are being designed to drive in general very cautiously, um, you know, it's, it, and, you know, essentially be very good citizens to the point that they might irritate their fellow human drivers. But right now, that's a, that mixture is the expectation for these vehicles. That's what is being planned for. Um, and it may be that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, when mo most vehicles are self-driving, for example, we might have a different style of driving because the vehicles communicate with each other and so on and so forth. But that's often the future. But your first question, what about the handoff between autonomy and human control? That's what's known as a level three vehicle. And there's sort of, you know, five levels of autonomy. Level three vehicles are ones that can drive themselves, but at any point might either ask for the human driver to intervene or the human driver might simply have to intervene because the vehicle entered an unsafe situation. That, to many, is an extremely dangerous kind of vehicle because it is hard, demonstrably hard for people to get situational awareness and intervene, particularly in a time-limited crisis situation. And on top of that, people tend to over-rely on the technology, become complacent, and we've already seen crashes. The Tesla and truck yeah. accident? That's right. Great question or questions, Rachel. It sounds like one of the issues that we're we're dealing with here is uh, the, the the competition, if if that's the right way to put it, between technology and policy. Uh, is technology getting ahead of the policy, or vice versa? You know, technology is almost always ahead of policy, and that's not necessarily a bad thing uh, because. It can, when a technology emerges, it can be hard to know what are its unintended consequences, where are the dangers that it poses. Uh, you know, when email, for example, was first introduced, spam was not a thing. Um, you know, phishing was not a thing. So the technology creates the problems that then need to be addressed. And so policy is almost always behind it. And the question is, is it so far behind that it fails to address the problems we already see, or is it just far enough behind that it can solve problems as they come through. And, you know, just as one example, we had planes flying for decades before we had the Civil Aviation Administration and the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, you know, cars were on the road long before what is now NHTSA, you know, was ever developed. So this is mm -hmm. a pattern we see throughout. It's not uncommon and it's not, not always bad. Okay, uh, we have an email from Margie. How can the vehicles operate in parking garages and park in areas with many signs for parking restrictions? Great question. So we will see redesigned parking areas where the vehicle is no longer directed by signage, but by RFID, by very specific features, images. I mean, imagine a vehicle sensor looking up, for example, at the, at the ceiling of a parking garage and it's being directed uh, the way you get a barcode scan or other kind of scan. So the ways in which some of this will be communicated to a vehicle will be quite different. In other cases, for example, regular road signs, vehicles are being designed to recognize a stop sign, you know, a yield sign, uh, red lights and, and other traffic signage. 
So in some cases, like an autonomous parking garage, there might be specific technology. And for the rest of the time, the vehicles are designed to do what you and I do. Got it. It sounds like the technology will figure these things out. I'm curious, and I, I think I've heard you speak about this in the past, how the rise of autonomous vehicles may affect society more more broadly. Uh, we, we mentioned briefly car ownership earlier, uh, the, the number of vehicles we may see on the roads. What, what are some broader effects you see from these developments? You know, it's it's hard almost to enumerate those broader effects. I like, I like to think of it as, you know, we are today where we were in 1990 with the Internet, where people were starting to get an idea that this is something we can use to communicate with each other faster and maybe differently. But it was almost impossible to imagine the things we can do today and the ways in which we use the Internet for everything. And I think the same will be true of self-driving. So it's not only the usual things that will be affected, like congestion, but the knock-on effects. For example, autonomous vehicles may have a significant impact on our greenhouse gas emissions, for better or for worse, depending on how they're deployed. They may change our land use because if your car doesn't need to park itself, for example, now I live in San Francisco, we have a huge housing crisis here, but the houses we currently use to store our cars can now be used to house people, our garages. So things are going to change dramatically, how we shop, how we engage with each other, not to mention mobility provided for people who you know, have, have disabilities or who are in a, other situations where they can't drive or are too young to drive. There are enormous number of potential positives that we could get from this technology, but at the same time, negatives, for example, sapping riders from transit, again, adding to congestion, changing our land use to increase suburban migration, it's really TBD, but I think this technology is going to touch everything. And you can't uh, – I would have thought that this would have be a net positive uh, from a, 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 an environmental standpoint, but you're saying it's not so obvious. It's not so obvious because it depends on what the vehicles look like. For example, if you can suddenly do what you want in a vehicle, one can imagine – someone having a vehicle in which there's a bed and a treadmill and an office, you know, a caravan essentially that drives itself um, because now we can do so much inside them. Um, or we can imagine smaller vehicles that are sized exactly to the ride that is needed. People don't own their vehicles. They say, today I just need one seat in that vehicle and a car pulls up with exactly one seat or one seat for you. On the, mm. you know, and, and so mileage might change occupancy might change, how far people live. There's going to be a trend where people live farther away from their places of work because it's not so costly in terms of their time to spend another hour, for example, in, the, in, a, in a vehicle because it's driving itself. So we might increase increased urban sprawl, but if you don't need to own a car in cities because we've got shared autonomous vehicles running around, that might make city living cheaper because you don't have to find parking for your car. Um, it's easier to get around. So there are all kinds of competing forces, and the net result is not only unclear, but it depends on the policies that we pursue, whether a city says, you know, we are going to use autonomous vehicles to solve our air quality, congestion, and equity problems, for example, or not. So it's in our, it's, part of it is at least in our control. Very good. Uh, Donnie has an email question. There are certain driving scenarios that necessitate that a driver swerve out of the way due to two cars wanting to switch into the same lane. 
At that moment, the driver has to determine whether to swing back to the original lane or continue in the lane. I'm a Tesla owner and use autopilot all the time and think about these things. How would an autonomous vehicle handle these situations, especially when it has to make a decision between hitting the car on the right or going back to its original lane where a motorcyclist has just occupied its original spot? A human driver would decide to hit the car on the right since less damage would occur than hitting the motorcycle driver. How would an autonomous car with passengers handle the situation? So that is, that's a great question and one that's close to me because I was almost in exactly that situation when I was 19 and spun out on the highway and hit a semi behind me and lived to tell the tale. But uh, it was a terrible crash. And I wonder what would a self-driving vehicle have done because I clearly was not a, a capable driver, did not handle that situation optimally. Now, the hope is that an autonomous vehicle will be able to analyze much faster, in fact, than we can, a huge number of options that it can take because it can keep in its so-called mind the trajectory of all the vehicles around it. It can see things that a human driver can't because, for example, radar can look several cars ahead to see what's going on. So it's possible that an AV will be able to better calculate the risks of different consequences as than, than human drivers could, and in fact, might even be able to avoid those circumstances. Imagine an AV, for example, that is designed to stay out of other vehicles' blind spots above a certain speed, which is a you know a dangerous place to be. There's the opposite situation where the AV is not able to recognize it; it's not been programmed well or designed well, or there's you know problems with its laser; it's been hacked. Who knows? And so. It's very, very plausible that an AV can do that job better than humans could, but it depends on how well it's designed. So you've just raised two other important questions. Uh, one is the security of the technology and the hacking. Uh, what's your impression on that score right now? Well, it is a serious concern. Um, I can't you know, I can't, I can't um, overstate the concern about cybersecurity because we, uh, we have to ask ourselves, well, is there a reason someone would want to hack a car? Obvi yes, there is. For fun, for profit, for causing mayhem. Um, is there an opportunity to do so? Absolutely, because as we get infotainment systems in the vehicle, as we do more and more and our vehicles are more connected, there's a greater opportunity for that control. And is the consequence severe? Absolutely. If a, you know, if a hacker takes control of the vehicle, um, you know, causes it to run into walls, run into others, other vehicles. So there's a huge risk here. And there's also a huge community of people working on the problem. I mean, for example, uh, you know, I'll refer to aviation. Aviation systems are designed in a way that there are, you know, gaps between the system on the, on the plane and the rest of the internet, for example, information can't cross over. Those kinds of considerations are being applied. I will confess this is not my area of expertise, um, but cybersecurity is one of the biggest challenges for self-driving vehicles because we've already seen that today's vehicles can get hacked. You know, someone can, can break in, uh, you know, virtually into one's vehicle and take over control of the windshield wipers and the, the blinkers. So we're already in a world where that's possible and that risk is only going to increase. So my second question has to do with responsibility, which I suppose gets into the insurance question, which is regardless of what goes wrong, whether uh, the, the cameras or radar can't pick up the glare on the road or whether the car gets hacked, 
uh, who's responsible? Who's going to pay for any damage that ensues? Well, increasingly, I mean, what autonomy is doing is it's transferring responsibility for driving from the human to the vehicle. And so as it does that, more and more responsibility, liability is going to reside with the developers and manufacturers of these vehicles. But it gets complicated because, for example, imagine a privately owned autonomous vehicle and it's whose responsibility is it to wipe down the LIDAR, to make sure the camera lens is clean, to or do basic things like change the oil and change the change the tires or, um, you know, what have you. So there's a shared responsibility, particularly with privately owned vehicles for fleets, um, for self-driving fleets that are owned by a service provider. That's a different story. They are clearly and entirely responsible. Um, but it increasingly we are going to see liability rest with the vehicle and the vehicle developers and not with the humans in them. We have an email from Gary. Do you see a level four car that also has the ability to operate outside a geofence using manual controls? And you might want to explain Absolutely. what level four is. Sure. Yes. So a level four vehicle is a vehicle that can drive itself when and when it does drive itself, it does not require any intervention from the human driver. So if it's a vehicle that's designed to operate on highways in L.A., when it's on autonomous mode and highway in LA, it will never require the human driver to help it. But outside of its its zone, essentially, what in the, the parlance is the operational design domain, um, outside of that, it is expected that a human will actually drive the vehicle. You know, this is for, for OEMs, for, you know, companies like GM and Ford, a lot of their vision is to create technologies that do have the capability for a person to drive, but then when they get into the into the autonomy zone to be able to flick a switch and say, okay, you know, I, I'm piecing out. So vehicle, you drive. I'm going to take a nap and give me a heads up when we are about to exit that, you know, the, the autonomy zone and, you know, I'll, I'll re-engage. So absolutely that is a mode of vehicle or design of vehicle that is being worked on. Good. Another email, this time from Ken. As a software engineer, I know there's no such thing as bug-free software. How do we certify, in quotes, that self-driving vehicles have no bugs? That's a great question. If you have the answer, give me a ring. My number is, you know, <laughs> it's, an, uh, un, it's an unanswered question. Software certification, particularly when we're talking about uh, software that relies on machine learning and artificial intelligence, which is sometimes hard to interpret um, and learn, you know, and, and learns its own rules, that's extremely difficult. And we don't actually have a way of doing it. One can do certification that the software has been designed with best principles in mind. You can create a, you know, a, a data set essentially to run through your software and say, see, under all of these things we threw at the software, it did what we expected. But ultimately, I think for this technology, because it's so complex and because it's changing all the time, the proof is going to be in the pudding, which is, when you put it on the road, how does it perform? Now, that's a problem. We don't want to put out dangerous technology only to find that, you know, it's unsafe. So the question will be, what can we do before we deploy it to make sure that it's safe? And I think things like simulation, closed course driving, real world driving with lots of miles under your belt are going to be key. 
What it comes down to, though, is that we're going to see self-driving vehicles on the road and not know exactly how safe they are. That's an uncertainty that I think if we want to see that technology on the road, we're going to have to live with. Nanny, one thing I wonder is how are you keeping up with all the news, all the developments in this? Uh, just before we got on the call, I did a, a Google search, autonomous vehicles. Uh, three top stories from the last few hours. One is about thermal cameras. Are they going to be the key to making safer self-driving vehicles? Another one is about the rise self-driving vehicles actually increasing car ownership. Another one's about robot cars are going to kill London jobs, but not until 2030, so there's some time left. Uh, I mean, I'm curious if you have any, any reactions to those headlines, but also just how you're keeping up. You know, well, in terms of keeping up, the reality is no one person can keep up. It is a field that is moving so fast. There's so many complexities to it, and it has captured the public imagination. So we hear about developments on almost an hourly basis. Um, and, and, you know, now there's drama rolling out, like things like the, you know, Uber Waymo lawsuit. And it, so it's, it's getting, it's a very complicated, interesting space. Uh, personally, I have a few simple things I do every morning. I check the news uh, under autonomous vehicle and see what, what are the latest headlines. Um, about once a week, I check the latest scholarly articles that have come out, you know, using, you know, LexNexus or Google Scholar or what have you. And, then I get together with my colleagues. So there are some important conferences. In San Francisco, every year we have the Automated Vehicle Symposium. Every year in San Francisco, which is the place to be if you are concerned about this technology, particularly its policy implications. So there's ingesting a huge amount of data every single day, and then there's getting together with the right people who've been doing the same thing. Is, it, it sounds like you're in the right place at the right time. Is, is the center of gravity uh, remaining? Is it holding in the San Francisco area? Certainly the, developing, the developers in California and in particular the San Francisco Bay Area, I mean, this is where it's at. California has, I think, 50-some registered companies working on self-driving and testing self-driving here. That said, there's a lot of good work being done in Europe and in Japan. Um, but really, I think if, if someone wants to work on self-driving, the Bay Area is the place to be. That said, that's not necessarily where testing is taking place. For example, Phoenix is now where Waymo is going to be is doing their work. Um, Pittsburgh is Uber's destination. Um, Vegas. So it depends in the U.S. It depends on which states have really favorable regulations or no regulations at all, really, when it comes to testing and deploying self-driving. Um, so the technology development is separate from its testing, and that's separate from its ultimate deployment. We have another question from Rachel. Obviously, Nitty can't answer the second part. I am bought in that the safety benefits are huge, and the sooner we get self-driving cars out on the road, the better. Uh, but what can citizens do to help accelerate making self-driving cars ubiquitous? Are there stocks we should be investing in, legislation we should be supporting? Anything else? That's a great question. Um, you know, one of the things, I don't know that there's any something any individual citizen can do other than, of course, if you want to, you know, again, go to Vegas and get a ride in a self-driving vehicle. But as a, as a country, as a community, I think our attitude about risk is really important here. 
people in general are not very good at adequately judging the risk of something. We consistently overestimate the risk of dramatic things like getting struck by lightning and being involved in a terrorist attack. We consistently underestimate everyday risks like the risk of driving. And so one thing that would be better for everyone, I think, and not just for self-driving, but for other things, is if our perception of risk were better aligned with the realities of risk. So in a way, do yourselves a favor and understand what are the real risks you face every day and what aren't. And what that can help us do is be ready for technology that saves lives, even when it's not yet perfect. Um, It can help us invest money in life-saving technologies where we're actually saving lives. And that's, again, not just limited to self-driving, but for example, investing in cleaner air or cleaner water can be save a lot more lives, for example, than in some of the other things that are just more dramatic but are much harder to solve. So I think that's that's just one thing that as a society we always struggle with. And that's just how people are wired is to, you know, mis, uh, mischaracterize the risks around them. But I think for beneficial technologies, realigning that a little bit can go a long way. Matt has an email. He asks, what is your best view of how the timing of AV development and penetration will evolve over the next 10, 20 years? In other words, when do you think we will see an inflection point where more than 10% of new vehicles sold in a given year are AVs? Oh, that is a, that is a tough question that I don't like to answer, but I will give a try. If I had to give my my best guess, but you know, um, one of my roles is uh, as director of Center for Decision Making Under Uncertainty. So this is a best guess, but it is also a poor guess. Oops. So I think so we might hit that. It, this is, oh, it's totally uncertain. You know, it just, okay. so let me give you my best guess, but let me, let me also say why I don't, I wouldn't put money behind my own guess. I would say between 2030 and 2040, we will start seeing that transition and inflection point. I think these next 10 years, we're going to see deployments, pilots, the first introduction of these vehicles. But it takes a long time for people to turn over their fleets because cars are long-term investments. We sometimes own them for 15, 20 years or longer. So it takes a long time for a new technology to percolate through the entire American fleet of transportation vehicles. That said, I think there's a lot of demand for this. Despite what poll numbers sometimes show, I think there's a lot of demand for this technology. Ultimately, it's really, really uncertain because, gosh, one dramatic multi-vehicle self-driving crash could could derail the whole show. Just to get one more prediction out of you on this score, <laughs> do you see more uh, professional fleets uh, uh, buying these cars or individuals? I think we're going to see a lot of you know, professional fleets or privately owned fleets because it is, it, the math just makes sense. If you have to buy an expensive vehicle uh, that drives itself, you want it to be doing stuff a lot, right? You want to make, get your, get your money's worth. And so it's this private fleets, I think, that can get the most economy out of self-driving. Um, privately owned vehicles, there's certainly opportunity there. You can own your own self-driving vehicle. And when it's not driving you around, you can essentially hire it out to drive someone else around. So you can imagine a privately managed fleet or a, a, a company managing a fleet of privately owned self-driving vehicles. But I think that the technology may be expensive and it, it may not it, it may be harder even for developers to let people privately own them because of that liability issue. 
So I think the fleets are where we're going to see a lot of impact. Okay, Gary has uh, an email question. AVs are thought to reduce the cost of transportation as a service, so doesn't supply and demand suggest there will be more congestion, not less, not less, at least initially. That's right. Um, I, you know, it, it. Well, let me say it depends. So, absolutely, that when you reduce the cost of a good, you see more consumption. Of that good and that's what is called in transportation induced demand and this is why when you create a new highway lane you've just reduced essentially the cost of driving by creating more capacity and so now that capacity quickly gets consumed by the latent demand that was there but that wasn't getting met so the same thing can happen here but what competes against that is for the other weird things that happen in our transportation system we have enormous unused capacity in the form of the four empty seats in the typical vehicle that are driving around. Self-driving vehicles could eliminate or eliminate empty seats and fill them with people and therefore reduce the number of vehicles on the road. They might actually drive better at constant speeds. If they're safer, they can get rid of a huge source of congestion, which are crashes. So absolutely, I think we can see more demand for driving, but that may not necessarily turn into more congestion. And one other from Gary, are you aware of the degree to which AV makers are building in redundant safety systems like the requirements in place for aircraft? If so, can you point to any resources that speak to this? Certainly there are, it's not only best practice and standard practice, but it's, you know, federal recommendations that there are fail-safe systems so that, you know, if something happens in an AV, you know, your LIDAR stops functioning or there's a cyber attack that the vehicle detects, it needs to be able to do something that puts it into a safe situation, whether that's coming to a safe stop or pulling off on the side of the road or calling for help, you know, from some emergency AV service. That, that needs to be built in and it is being built in, but it's certainly central to the safe deployment of AVs. Uh, getting back to the question, Nitty about what individuals can do uh, regarding autonomous vehicles. Uh, how about a little about what you are doing? What are you studying? Uh, what, what's coming up next on the on your re research portfolio? Yeah, there's a uh, there's a lot of stuff happening. Um, one of the things we're working on is how do our transportation agencies who have been tasked with figuring out what to do with our transportation system, how do they think about AVs, which can completely transform the demands on our on our roads, the needs for services, what happens with transit. So one of the things we're working on is how do those agencies make sense of a technology that is so disruptive, but also so uncertain and incorporate that into smart long range planning. Another thing we're working on is this issue of safety, which is, as I mentioned at the beginning of the call, how do we, we don't really have a way of knowing how safe AVs should be or how we will demonstrate it. Essentially, we don't know what tests they should have to take to prove safety, and we don't know what even would constitute a passing grade. And we're working on parts of that problem of how do we think about safety so that someone, a consumer can say, this AV is safer than that one, but both of them are safer than humans, except for the third one, but I like it better because yet da And that's surprisingly difficult given how hard it is to know how, you know, how safe a technology is that crashes very rarely. So those are a couple of things coming down the pike. We're also very interested in things like the greenhouse gas emissions, consequences of deploying AVs, and how do we harness AVs to meet 
a lot of transportation goals that have stymied us for a really long time. Things like issues of equity, um, congestion, local air pollution, improving walkability and livability in our cities, reclaiming that urban landscape, reconnecting ecological corridors because now we don't need our streets to be paved. Even things like the fact that our streets are paved means stormwater runs off and floods our cities. What if we didn't need those streets to be paved because we didn't need we didn't have so many cars? There's just so many knock-on effects, so many interesting things to think about and plan for so that we can use this technology to really get ahead of the game and transform the way we think about how we get around and how we live. So we'll be seeing all that from you in the coming weeks, months, years? <laughs> well, tomorrow. Uh, it's, this is going to be uh, years of research, um, years of research and years of, I hope, smart planning. All right, we do have some callers. Uh, Tina, would you like to uh, tap in our first caller? Perfect. It comes from the line of Robert Alspaugh. Please go ahead. Oh, hi. Uh, very interesting discussion. You know, when I hear all of this and I think about transportation needs and how this stuff all interplays, I just wonder the kind of money that we're, we're talking about spending on the train, if you will, how your thinking is, how this interfaces to, to autonomous driving and whether or not we're better off focusing more of our efforts there, uh, or do we really understand the interplay of all of those? I guess that's really my question. It's a, it's a great question, and in California that's particularly important because, you know, the debate around the high-speed rail. Now, I have not seen explicit analyses asking the question, what if instead of high-speed rail, we had a high-speed AV corridor? That's a question that should be asked and answered. But the interplay between mass transit and heavy rail and AVs is an interesting one because one of the biggest problems with with, with high-speed rail or rail in general is getting people to that last mile, connecting them to the rail stations. And again, in California, we've got Caltrain running up and down Um, you know, up and down the bay, but it's very hard to get to in some places. So AVs can, if they can actually connect people to rail transit, that can be terrific for, that can play such an important role for congestion and mobility, um, reducing the cost of travel. So, you know, AVs have a very important role to play with transit. The hope is that we will actually capitalize and capture that opportunity so that transit gets used more because of AVs and not less, because the benefits of transit, um, when it's, whether it's greenhouse gas emissions or air pollution, particularly as we electrify transit vehicles, is going to be huge. Thanks, Robert. Uh, Tina? Thank you. Our next question comes from Daniel Hinkle. Please go ahead. Hi. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, one of the underlying assumptions that seems to come out every time we have this automated vehicle discussions is that this technology will definitely be safer to one degree or another, which was the focus of the, the paper that, uh, that this call was sort of centered around. Um, but my question for you is, is there a case that this technology could be adopted at wide scale, uh, even if it's at parity with human driving, or even if it's, say, twice as dangerous as human driving, Given the underlying economics behind mobility as a service uh, and the race that we seem to be on to put this technology out there? That's a really great question. Let me start briefly by clarifying that our report asked 
simply the question, should we wait for perfection? It did not say, do we need to even wait for them to be better than human drivers? But it's an intriguing question because when people say, well, why would I get into a vehicle that's not as safe a driver as I am? Let's remember that people drive, for example, motorcycles all the time. We do dangerous things all the time. I used to be a paragliding pilot, which is, you know, we do dangerous things for other reasons because it's fun, it's interesting, it's more convenient. Otherwise, we'd never leave our house and even our houses aren't that safe. So the possibility that we would use AVs even when they're not as safe as the average human driver, I think it's possible. Uh, I think it's, you know, if, again, I think of all the things we don't do um, because we're not, safety is often not our top priority. We would never text and drive if safety was our top priority. We would never eat cereal in our car while we steer with our knees if safety was our top priority, we would always buckle up. We would always wear helmets on motorcycles. There's, you know, we would never go over the speed limit. Um, And so if these other benefits of being able to do whatever you want in your vehicle um, and getting back a lot of your time, being able to be distracted, um, it's conceivable that we don't, we would not wait for parity, that the benefits of the technology would make us say, you know what, I am willing to trade off a little bit of my, safety for all of these other benefits. And again, before we say, oh, that's a crazy idea, I would never do it. We do it every single day already. And I think it it could be something that becomes so normalized, we no longer even think about it. Thanks, Daniel. All right. You know, we have reached the end of our time. We've actually gone past our time by a couple of minutes. Uh, Nidhi, thank you for your time and insights. Thank you you. to our Policy Circle and RAN Next members and friends for joining us on this call. If you'd like more information on the report we've been discussing or upcoming Policy Circle events or to listen to a podcast, I would encourage you to visit our website, RAND.org. You could also send an email to policy underscore circle at RAND.org. This concludes our call. Thanks for participating and have a great day. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.